to Dr. Andrews, um, as a researcher on the front lines of, uh, of ALS, um, what do you need from Congress and the FDA uh, to continue to innovate on uh, uh, clinical trial design? I think it's very important to urge FDA to use its existing regulatory authority and abide by the 2019 FDA guidance when reviewing clinical trial results in the context of the disease that they're reviewing for. It's important to note that something like ALS that has a 0% chance of survival, if something shows a clinical benefit on retaining function and Mm -hmm. slowing disease progression and extending survival, yet is safe and well-tolerated, the traditional framework that we typically that's typically used by the FDA doesn't work for a fatal degenerative disease like ALS. Mm-hmm. In doing so, this can spur innovation and interest of other pharmaceutical companies to come in the space. When we get stuck in these types of situations, it, it actually drives people away from that disease and we lose that interest. So I think in that way, the two bills we talked about and urging some regulatory flexibility and abiding by the FDA guidance that was uh, finalized in 2019 can help that process along for clinical trials. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Connecting ALS. I am Jeremy Holden, joined by co-host Jessica Chapman. Jessica, thanks for being with us today. Hey, Jeremy. Good to see you as always. Yeah, we had a great conversation this week, jumping off of the House subcommittee hearing on neurodegenerative diseases. Dr. Jinzy Andrews was in attendance. Uh, Brian Wallach and his wife, Sandra Abravea, were there, along with a host of advocates across the neurospace. Uh, Jessica, were you able to watch that hearing? I was. I was not able to watch all of it as it took place over the entire day, but it was incredibly powerful, the testimonies that I was able to view, both from Dr. Andrews, of course, Brian and Sandra, and then to your point, other caregivers and advocates in the neurospace. It was an incredible conversation and testimony and I encourage anybody to really take a look if they have time. Yeah, we'll share a link to that in the show notes. So we were fortunate enough to be able to sit down with Dr. Neil Thacker, Chief Mission Officer at the ALS Association, and Abram Bielowskitz, the Director of Advocacy, to get their reflections on the hearing. And I thought it was a really great conversation, Jessica. I agree, indeed. And they kind of walked us through how we got to this place, especially going over the past year, which a lot has happened, but also a lot hasn't, which is why we had to, um, of course, have this meeting with the subcommittee. And I was heartened by Chairman Issue, who, as you'll know, um, in this conversation with Dr. Thacker and Abram, she certainly is becoming very proactive, or she is going to be rather very proactive with this. She has made a commitment that this committee needs to advance legislation. So I'm excited for our listeners to hear this conversation, and hopefully they'll be inspired too. Yeah, with that said, why don't we step out of the way and hear from Dr. Neil Thacker and Abram Bielowskis. Dr. Thacker, Abram, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, Dr. Thacker, you were front and center last week at the congressional subcommittee hearing around, you know, approaches to getting uh, 
moving forward on treating neurodegenerative diseases. Dr. Uh, Jinzy Andrews was there, a member of the ALS Association board, along with other advocates, including Brian Wallach and his wife, Sandra Abravea. But Dr. Thacker, I want to come back to that hearing, but I also want to look at, this has been part of a longer conversation around drug approval and uh, advancing the research. And I want to actually look ahead and get a sense of where does this fight, where does this conversation go from here? Well, there's there's lots of different elements to that, and, and Abram can talk in, in greater detail about the the legislative activity that came up in that hearing. There was a Promising Pathways Act. There was the Act for ALS. There was lots of really interesting conversation about how to handle clinical trials remotely so more people can uh, access the part of clinical trials easier, uh, which we don't have legislation on, but we we have some ideas uh, and, and in between the hearing, we should also talk about uh, there was a vote uh, on the House uh, side, and we got some good news for that as well. Part of the subtext of that hearing and some, sometimes the overt conversation was uh, drug approvals. And that's a longer conversation that doesn't necessarily happen with statute. Should, should I talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so part of what happened was the Part of the undercurrent, which describes the framework for how the FDA has said they will be approaching ALS clinical trials, is the clinical trial guidance guidelines that the FDA put out in 2019. And that was uh, the result of a multi-year process with many, many people, scientists, people with ALS, the people in the um, who developed these drugs from the pharmaceutical industry, coming together, working with the FDA, on how clinical trials should be designed. That guidance came out in 2019. It made a few things very clear. It made it clear that it's it's acceptable to judge the results of a clinical trial based on functional rating, the ALS uh, functional rating scale, which means the trials can be run uh, faster uh, than they would when you're only looking at survival. It also talked about the importance of biomarkers for ALS, which we don't have yet, which we're continuing to uh, fund research for. Um, but the 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 allowance to look at functional rating scales really did help move the clinical trial movement in ALS forward. And all the clinical trials that have been designed since then have really um, been using that guide the, that guidance as a way to help them figure out what to do. Um, so with that going on, we had some really interesting, promising results from Amelix about their drug, AMX35. We've talked about this before. They came out in the summer. And then in September, they published the first set of results about functional rating. Sabrina Paganoni, the, the uh, PI for that study, did a webinar through Niels. Uh, Dave, our head of research, and I did a, a little webinar after that webinar, commenting on the significance of the results and how we think it justifies approval. Um, but we recognize that there's still some ambiguity in those findings, and we're encouraging the FDA to move faster. In October, they released a second round of results based on the open label extension study where they showed a survival benefit as well for the people who were in that trial. And so again, Sabrina did a webinar through Niels. It's it's still online. Uh, Caldup and I did a second webinar where we talked again about the impacts of that study. And so now we had two really important pieces of data, functional uh, slowing of of progression which was shown by the change in that FRS score, and then also an increase in survival time for people who took the drug. And again, from a small study, a relatively small study, 
they, Amlex had intended all along to do a phase three study, but we, we argued that the data were so strong that it justified the FDA moving forward with an earlier approval. So while that process was going on, of course, the FDA and, and Amlex were supposed to be talking behind the scenes. We didn't see anything moving along as fast as we wanted. So we issued a petition. IMALS joined us in that petition. I think we got over 50,000 signatures. We submitted it in December, I believe, to the FDA, and then hoped the FDA and Amlex would work on that while we were having more informal conversations. And that process was not going fast enough. So starting in the spring, uh, our leadership, uh, Dr. Andrews, who testified at this hearing, and our uh, president, Colony Balas, had a series of meetings with FDA leaders, uh, with the acting head of the FDA, with uh, Dr. Cavazzoni, who was also a part of this uh, most recent hearing, where we, we were you know, laying out all the evidence, expressing our concerns, saying this was a strong case, showing how to fit the guidelines, and those conversations were really productive, but they weren't quite, quite getting there. So uh, we, we organized this uh, We Can't Wait meeting, this uh, action session, and uh, we had people from all over the ALS community come and speak about their experiences. Uh, we invited uh, Dr. Cavazzoni and her team to come and listen in on this session, and I do feel like that meeting made a big difference because... They understood the data all along. They understood the case. They understood the policy. But I think hearing voices, putting names and faces to, to you know, cells on a table is really powerful. And after that, again, sort of behind the scenes, things seem to change. Uh, the conversations we were hearing about uh, were also changing. And, and that was all positive. And so while all of this is going on, and this is just one intervention on one, one drug, there's also the Promising Pathways Act, which is going to help find uh, new regulatory authorities for the FDA so they could maybe approve drugs faster. There's the Act for ALS, which would create a center for uh, neuroscience research at the FDA, give them additional research resources, as well as, and very importantly, make it easier to support expanded access for people with ALS. And that had all been moving forward. Uh, Abram, in particular, had been working very closely with the House and Senate staff on those bills to make sure that they, they're more viable, that they send the right signal to the FDA about our priorities. And those things have been gathering momentum and gathering momentum uh, over the past two years. And so when we come to this hearing, uh, we have a hearing where we talk about Amlex. Uh, Neuron came up a little bit as well. There was discussion from other groups. There were some really uh, amazing witnesses talking about experiences with Huntington's disease and Alzheimer's and other neuroscience, because we all have some similar uh, challenges with biomarkers and, and getting, getting things approved, as well as Promising Pathways Act, the Act for ALS, and the things we've been learning through the pandemic about how to deliver clinical trials remotely and deliver care remotely. And, and that stuff bubbled up too. So uh, a lot happened at this hearing. It was a remarkable hearing, I would say, in terms of the engagement of the, the congressional members who were there. They were clearly moved. I mean, I was clear, everyone was, uh, especially by uh, Sandra and, and Brian's testimony. And um, Gen Z, uh, Dr. Andrews gave a really just clear sense of what needed to happen. She laid out all the points uh, and we had, Great conversations right after the hearing with with um, the, the Congress people, 
And because of the break, we got to hang out in their offices and have conversations with the staff. It was a, it was a very productive and very long day. Yeah, a productive day, a long day, but also an inspiring and emotional day as well. You saw that in the reactions from some of the committee members. Uh, let's hear a little bit of the testimony provided by IMALS co-founders uh, Brian Wallach and Sandra Abravaya. I beg of you. There are tens of thousands of patients who are watching this from their homes, wheelchair-bound, some of them on life support, watching this today. Their hope is in this hearing Some of them have waited and postponed their decision for suicide to see this hearing. I don't think you understand what this hearing means to us. Please do not let another generation of ALS patients die in pursuit of the perfect. Please let this be the first generation to survive. We want to live. You have the power to make that possible. We want to live. You have the power to make that possible. Thank you, Jeremy. I want to bring Abram into this conversation now. I really appreciate, Dr. Thacker, you providing your takeaways from that meeting. But Abram, can you speak to what this meeting was to you and what your main takeaways were as well? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, Neil, for that that great overview. So first of all, I want to start off by saying that this was a really promising hearing and there were lots of great questions that were asked from, you know, the members of committees. And it was really clear that these people had heard from the ALS community. They stayed on track and they asked questions that really demonstrated that that they wanted to get to the bottom of what is the biggest challenges and opportunities are for ALS and other neurodegenerative diseases for research and development. Uh, two really big things to me came out of the hearing, and they really started right off the bat. Uh, Chairwoman Eshoo started off with remarks about Amelix approval, trying to nail down the FDA on next steps there, and then also uh, tying it to conditional approval, which is something that is used in the European Union and the United Kingdom, Australia, and other countries to bring access to treatments earlier uh, than is the a lot of the times the case in the United States. And so uh, it's been a promising hearing talking about conditional approval, expanded access, and then ideas to increase use of decentralized trials. Uh, The ALS Association, one of our top goals for uh, the next decade is to increase the number of clinical trials by at least 50%. In order to get to treatments and a cure, we need to get more shots on target, if you will. And in order to do that, the best way to do it is to increase the number of clinical trials. One of the biggest issues with ALS is that, number one, there, it is a fairly rare disease, and so there aren't a whole lot of patients to participate in clinical trials. And number two, there aren't that many clinical trials for people with ALS to participate in. As the science has developed and as we've learned more about ALS over the past few years, trials have gotten much more targeted and much more specific, and there are fewer seats available for people with ALS to actually participate in trials. And so it's become all the more important for people with ALS and the ALS community as a whole that they get access to potentially effective treatments when they're still in the investigational stage. And the best way to do that at this point is through expanded access. So the ALS community is coming into this hearing from a non-academic situation where we're faced with potential new effective treatments and there are limited opportunities for access. And so over the past few years, there are kind of four big areas 
big up inflection points, if you will, that I see coming into the hearing that have really led to this point. The first was in 2019, as as Neil said, when FDA developed their first ever ALS-specific drug development guidance um, and another related guidance on flexibilities that FDA should and can use for uh, approving drugs with high unmet needs like ALS. The second part was this petition that Neil talked about last year when we learned about the efficacy of Amelix. So we got 50,000 signatures from people with ALS in the ALS community calling on FDA to approve this as soon as possible. And then just this past day on the May, we had the We Can't Wait action meeting with FDA where people with ALS across the community shared what it means to them even to have a small outcome from, um, you know, whether it's six months or or just being able to have increased mobility, you name it, what it means to, to be able to have more time and how, how these drugs could help them. And then finally, we come into this hearing and on full display, we have uh, members of the committee um, talking about these important bills. And it was really exciting to, at the wrap up, um, have uh, Chairwoman Eshoo commit to bringing forward the Act for ALS Act and, and having the committee consider it. And so I think that that's the most promising, you know, kind of where we go from here um, in terms of next steps is as soon as possible, holding them to making sure that we get a, a hearing on this bill, that it gets passed out of committee and, and by the House as soon as possible and into law um, so that folks can begin getting access to experimental treatments as soon as possible all the while while increasing the number of clinical trials through a new FDA research program. Yeah, Abram, I, I took note with Congresswoman Eshoo's closing uh, comments as well and, and that commitment. Let's uh, take a quick listen to her comments. And although this has been an extraordinarily long, drawn-out, frustrating uh, day, and I know that you're exhausted, um, but none of it has been um, a waste of time. None of it, not one minute, even the waiting uh, is worth it. And we're going to show you that it was worth it uh, by taking up the legislation, working together to pass it. I think that there is a rock solid commitment here at the committee to advance this legislation that Dr. Andrews and others, including the advocates, have said, you've been instructive to us. You've said, this is what we need. It's the right ingredients. It's the right recipe uh, to address um, uh, what is um, what is ailing us. I was struck by a question and answer with Dr. Andrews around um, the use of kind of virtual opportunities to engage in, in clinical studies, uh, some of the learnings that came during the pandemic. Uh, let's take a listen. I, I'm aware that um, uh, there was some... Um, experimentation with uh, long distance or remote uh, trials. Um, is that something that we should um, expand further? And, and how big a deal is that? I think this is a, a very big deal, especially for ALS that um, and other actually neurodegenerative diseases, as you heard from the advocate with Alzheimer's disease. Um, access to clinical trial sites are very difficult. And so anything that we can do, and I'll, I'll name some specific issues with it because it's been highlighted during the COVID pandemic when, when I've had to conduct clinical trials through the pandemic mm -hmm. uh, with limited access to our clinical trial sites because of fear of transmission of the virus. One is trying to ship investigational product to patients. Um, sometimes that can be difficult across state lines if you're trying to treat uh, people from, in a large catchment area. 
The second is issues about regulations of principal investigators or physicians who are doing the clinical trial trying to assess safety and monitor the patients, and the patients may be across state lines. So um, trying to make it so that it's easier for patients to participate in clinical trials in that way. So shipping of drug um, across state line, um, uh, practice of medicine and research. Is that something that, that you think is going to be part of clinical trials going forward? Uh, is, are there opportunities to enlarge the playing field and the number of folks that are participating in trials as we begin to more fully embrace virtual opportunities, distance opportunities? Yes, definitely. And and so that's that's an exciting part of, of the, I guess, the one of the few silver linings of this pandemic is we, we as, an, as a community, have been forced to figure this out, and we've made a lot of progress. And we have to make sure that the legal frameworks are there to support that activity. And so one of the things Dr. Andrews mentioned is, is the, the challenges of just transporting a drug to someone across state lines to put an experimental therapy in the mail. Um, there are some rules that get in the way of that, uh, and that's, that's the kind of thing that we should be able to fix. And there, there are a number of other, you know, Little regulatory issues, uh, small issues. Sometimes they're state issues. Sometimes they're federal, and it's a it's a big tangle. Uh, and so we have to sort that out. And I was really pleased that the committee seemed very open to to wading into that mess. And so that's I think something that we're we've been working on. And I think we we have the opportunity now to to press even harder on the gas and, and make that that happen sooner. And like, like Neil said, one of the silver linings from the COVID pandemic is how much we've learned about telehealth and how it can help people with ALS who have significant mobility challenges getting to multidisciplinary clinics, which are clinically proven to increase quality and length of life for people with ALS, how they can do that more efficiently and get increased access to these vital services at the multidisciplinary clinics through telehealth has been a real lesson learned throughout the pandemic, but digital health technology doesn't just apply to clinical care, so so the kind of health care that people with ALS receive, it also applies to clinical trials. And so when we heard about decentralized trials, which are also referred to as remote trials, this is a real opportunity for increasing the number of clinical trials for people with ALS. So I mentioned this earlier, not only are there few people with ALS and few trials, if we can get trials to better integrate uh, remote monitoring and wearables and everything like that, blood tests at a local, you know, uh, clinic, you you name it. If we can increase the number of of trials by making them more decentralized, that's a real important opportunity for the Alice community to increase the number of, the the amount of science that we're able to push forward. And, And also we can supplement existing studies. So if we're running a trial for four months, People come into the clinic three times, we get three points of data. But if we can collect data from them remotely, we may be able to collect an additional 10 points, 12 points of data. And that additional data means that our, our the, the findings from that cl- trial are a lot more reliable. So we have more powerful trials by a hybrid approach of, of uh, in-person visits and, and uh, data collected from home. So, so this can be helpful to all trials, even if they're not trying to recruit people who are far away. Thank you, Abram. Thank you, Dr. Thacker. Along the same lines of increasing um, access expansion, there was some big news recently in the House on the appropriations front. What is the latest on the fight for federal funding in the fight against ALS? 
Yeah, absolutely. And this great news actually came right between that five-hour break between panels for, for the hearing this past week. The House actually passed a mini bus that included seven different appropriations bills, including uh, Labor and Health and Human Services and the Agriculture FDA bill. And we were really excited that thanks to the tireless efforts of the ALS community, this included many of the aggressive requests that we had introduced at the beginning of this year, including a million dollars for a new uh, commissioning a new National Academies of Sciences study to make ALS livable. This this would create a set of policy recommendations for what can be done by the government and all stakeholders to make ALS livable. And so this is a real opportunity to push forward not just drug development, but how we take care of people with ALS, you name it, um, working with all stakeholders, industry, other nonprofit organizations in the government. But also, $5 million new dollars for the Orphan Products Grants Program at the FDA. This is the first time that we've asked for funding for this program. And this would help fund really innovative new trial designs, natural history studies to better understand progression and pathology. But also level funding for the CDC National Registry and for increased funding for the National Institutes of Health, which is the, the largest public funder of ALS research in the world. Um, one thing that we're still waiting on, I mentioned that this, this minibus included the AL, uh, the uh, defense, or sorry, the labor, health, and agriculture bills. It did not include the defense bill, so the House Appropriations Committee still has to proceed with passing the defense bill, which the the committee had provided forty million for. We'd like to see that bumped up to to sixty million. So next up, the Senate has to craft its, its all of its spending bills, and over there are going to be focused on making sure all these great new funding for national academies, the FDA program, level funding for the registry and NIH, all of that makes it into it, but also increased funding for the defense ALS research program. So there's a lot of work going on right now, and we're going to continue aggressively lobbying Congress to make sure all this happens, and we could really use your help. If you want to get engaged, please do do head over to ALS.org forward slash advocacy and take action today. Abram, you nullified my last question. Uh, as you said, uh, you know, Act for ALS, we have a commitment from from Chairwoman Eshoo, uh to kind of move forward on some of the legislative asks. The appropriations uh, now moves over to the Senate. Um, so we continue to push that rock up the hill. And uh, I was going to ask what folks at home can do, folks listening at home, but you, you went ahead and answered that. Uh, as we look ahead into the fight that continues, any closing thoughts on, on the hearing and, and where the fight goes from here? Yeah, so I, the biggest takeaway for me on kind of what's next is that it's it's been made clear to us that this hearing wasn't a legislative hearing, and what that means to all of you out there is that it doesn't satisfy the regular order requirements for passing the Act for ALS. But the fact that we got a commitment from uh, Chairwoman Eshoo to move forward on this bill is very promising, and a commitment to consider the bill by the committee is what we need at this point. And so. Next steps got to include making sure that the committee follows through and does that and, and passes that out of committee so the full house can take it up as soon as possible. And, and also to just, again, add another, another layer, all of these legislative steps, these policy steps, this engagement with the FDA is part of a larger plan to transform what it's like to have ALS, to improve quality of life for the people who have uh, ALS and their caregivers, and to increase length of life. And, and to do that, we do need 
more treatments, even if they have an incremental benefit, and then to figure out how those treatments work together in combination. And we, we also um, need more clinical trials to get those treatments approved. And then once we find those treatments, we need them to market as quickly as possible so everyone can have access to them. That means we, we do have to keep pushing on all of these levers at the same time. We have to push on the FDA. We have to push on Congress, not only to get drugs approved, but to get more mechanisms, more research dollars into the pipeline. That's how we put it together. That's how we make ALS livable. It's, it's through a series of incremental steps. And then eventually, at some point, these, these things will click and we'll make some fundamental breakthroughs and we'll be able to find the cures that we're all looking for. But this is the fastest way to change the course of the disease that we have now is to, to keep pushing on all these other levers. A hopeful note to conclude on Dr. Neil Thacker, Abram Bielowskis. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you again, Dr. Thacker and Abram. It is always a pleasure and a privilege to have you on the show. You always provide great insight into areas that, frankly, are oftentimes way above my head. So thank you so much for walking us through and simplifying a really complicated situation. Yeah, I rolled up my sleeves during that conversation because I'm animated and ready to move the fight forward. And of course, uh, listeners, be sure to find opportunities to engage in advocacy. If you're not signed up to be an advocate, we will share with you in the show notes ways to do so. That is going to do it for this week's episode. You can find Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us and recommend us to a friend. It's a great way for us to connect with even more listeners. This week's episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon. Music.